Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game with me, Kevin Day, and Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire. Kieran, how are you today? This blustery day reminds me of Winnie the Pooh, of course, which reminds me of Tigger, which reminds me of you, naturally. I'm uh, I'm remarkably cheerful. Um, I'm yeah, I'm just back from two weeks in Thailand. Ah, where I was taken with with the Baroness, um, <laughs> and uh, I was advised uh, quite forcefully that uh, if I was to go on TV and radio during our holiday, we've not been away together for a long time, that she was going to do to my phone what uh, Rebecca Vardy did to hers. Um, so as I didn't fancy it going into, uh, into, into the Thai Ocean or wherever it is, uh, I, uh, I've been keeping a, a low profile for a couple of weeks. Yes, you, you, you have. That will explain why that chap from Sheffield Hallam University found himself all over the media for, <laughs> for, for two weeks. Well, everyone, because we, we were trying to keep it quiet that you were away for some reason, because in the, in, the, in the same way that people don't like to spook the stock market, Producer guy didn't like to spook our listeners by the, by the fact that you weren't actually in the country. So it's like, but they would have worked it out because so, people would have gone, oh, I've been watching Sky Sports all day. And for some reason, Maguire's not on. He must be. <laughs> he, he must be. It's questions day, Kieran. And um, hopefully, we're recording this on Sunday. And hopefully, our first question next week will be how much did it cost Palace to bring in Graham Potter as manager? So I'll keep my fingers crossed for that. But we have questions today, but we also have those news stories, Kieran, that we said we'd, we'd hold over from from last week because obviously Everton and Forest dominated uh, our, our last pod. Uh, I, I quite like the first stories. So Jim Ratcliffe getting his feet under the table at, at Man United. And I, I don't know if this decision is, is him, but it's a, a brilliant bit of recruitment shithousery. Is the only way I can I can put it. And as I worked in human resources, um, I, I can mention that recruitment shithousery is an official phrase. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, welcome to Manchester United, the the new chief executive who will be joining in the summer, um, Omar Barada, and uh, Mr. Barada is currently the chief football operations officer, and has been in that post at another club. In mm. the city of Manchester, Manchester City <laughs> itself. He's actually he actually works for the City Football Group, so therefore he's been involved as part of the the multi club ownership uh, arrangement. Uh, he's held in very high regard. 
Um, there's no bad feeling by all accounts between the two clubs. You know, City have said it's a chance to, you know, it's a it's a step up in, in terms of the role. Um, I think he's taking over in the summer, so Patrick Stewart will be, be carrying on for the moment. Um, so you know, we, we wish him, as I'd wish anybody moving to a new position, we wish him all the best. It's, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's one of the biggest jobs in football uh, from, from an executive point of view. There's, there's no denying that. And I think it's, it's interesting from the point of view of Manchester City are up on 115 charges. One can only presume that Manchester United must have a, a, a view that Manchester, that Manchester City have got a pretty robust defence against those 115 charges because it would look pretty bad from their point of view if their new chief executive was tainted with you know the the accusations that have been levelled against Manchester City. So I, I think Manchester United fans are celebrating this because they've managed to you know, effectively headhunter headhunting across the city, um, as as people will recall from the the Carlos Tevez uh, move, is is something which is celebrated. Um, and I think Manchester City fans will be saying, "Well, you know, we will take this." Is if the if the evidence was overwhelming against Manchester City, and and you know, my view is is certainly that if Manchester City are found guilty of the hundred and fifteen charges, then I think the whole board, because this is effectively an accusation of of corporate corporate misfeasance and corporate fraud. Um, that the whole board would have to resign, and I think anybody connected with, with those uh, charges, their you know their reputation would be sullied. So Manchester United must have done their due diligence and have come down with with a viewpoint as to um, they must feel confident that uh, Miss Verada uh, is is not connected with this, or alternatively that uh, they believe that Manchester City have a have a strong defence. So yeah, I think there's there's more to this than meets the eye, as tends to be the case. That's very interesting. I understand as well, Kieran, that we have a few more details about the actual Jim Ratcliffe deal. Yes. Um, we, we've said all along that our, our friends who wear suits, our friends who have silver tongues, would probably be the biggest winners in all of this. And it turns out that the Rain Group uh, and their job was to go through the list of interested parties in acquiring Manchester United um, and say, yeah, yeah, I've been that one. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's a bit like doing Tinder. OK, you know. I, I will take your words on that. <laughs> or grinder, or I, grinder. Yeah, I'm, I'm... I, I, either way, I've not, I've not swiped in any direction on either of those two estimable sides. <laughs> yes. So it's a bit, a bit like doing Tinder on a grinder on a corporate level, um, and they have uh, they've pocketed um, a not inconsequential thirty one million on Ooh. the back of that. Um, and on, and in, in addition, um, the executives at Manchester United they're set to um, generate significant bonuses upon the successful completion of the sale of twenty five percent of the company. So it travels all round, I think, for uh, you know, the likes of Richard Arnold and Co. Um, Ed Woodward, whose name isn't mentioned at Manchester United very much these days, um, I think he's he's likely to benefit significantly because he'll be able to sell 25% of his shares in Manchester United to Jim Ratcliffe, 
for $33 a piece, and he'll have picked those up in his option scheme at a far lower price. So lots of people will do extremely well out of this. Um, there's also been mention that the Glazers can buy back Manchester United in 18 months. I think that's been a bit overplayed because what it effectively says is that if there is another offer in 18 months, um, unless Jim Ratcliffe matches that offer, then the Glazers can buy back the shares. But you know, if Jim Ratcliffe does match that offer, potentially he could end up taking over the whole of the club. So, so there, there's lots of uh, lots of detail. Um, and the other issue, I think, which was of interest was in respect of the second sort of public offer in relation to the potential sale of Manchester United, which was from Sheikh Jassim. And, and you know, one of the benefits on being on the stock exchange is, is this, the stock exchange themselves demand a certain de minimis level of disclosure and transparency, something which sadly is lacking in football in 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 general. Um, and the Rain Group came to the conclusion that they, they regularly asked Sheikh Jassim for proof of funding, and that was not forthcoming. So um, his offer was more complicated. I think his offer was unpopular with the Manchester United board because it offered less money per share for the A shares, the shares which are traded on the stock exchange, compared to the, the price he was willing to pay for the shares from the Glazers. Um, but, you know, it's it's easy to say. It's yeah, a bit like I'd walk up to somebody and say, I, I want to go and buy your £5 million house. I'm, I'm prepared to bid £5 million for it. Uh, by the way, I'm not going to tell you whether or not I've got £5 million. Um, you can see that from the seller's point of view, there's bound to be a bit of scepticism. Um, pausing only to reflect, Kieran, that De Minimus was, I think, the B-side of a Yes single in 1971, a 25-minute B-side, as I understand. <laughs> you, you, can you clarify something that you mentioned there, Kieran? I noticed um, in two of the papers, in two of the big papers, which are terrible that a middle-aged man still refers to broadsheets as the big papers, <laughs> but there, there was a story that they carried that there was, there was still a chance that if the, if the Glazers find somebody in the next year who's willing to buy the whole club, so to speak, then the contract that Jim Ratcliffe signs is such that if, if that happens, he he has to sell his 25% stake in the club so that this potential buyer can buy the whole club. Is is, is that right? I, I think he has the option to match that price. Ah, And okay. if he chooses not to do so, then he, he would be potentially obliged to sell the shares. So it, it does give him a degree of, of flexibility. Um, you know, there's no evidence that the Glazers are now actively marketing their remaining shares in Manchester United. And uh, I think that would be, again, part of the deal is that you can't be seen to be touting those shares around. Um, but you know, it's now all in the public domain. So should there be a you know, another billionaire uh, wondering what to do with their spare cash, um, they they know what they have to do. And that would be beneficial to Sir Jim Ratcliffe from a financial point of view, and it would be beneficial to the Glazers as well. Now, Kieran, this next story, I don't know what it says about us as a pod or what it says about Watford fans, but we were contacted by quite a few Watford fans who said, hang on a second, I know Everton and Forest is a big story, but you missed out the real news about Watford uh, this week. 
Um, but it's really bad news, potentially. But Watford fans are really upset that we didn't carry <clears throat> this potentially really bad news story. So just to placate them, here is the potentially really bad news Watford story. Yes, and we've always taken the view that it doesn't matter what the club is because you know every football fan is equal. Just because you support a club with a, a bigger media profile doesn't mean that you're any less of a fan. So in respect of Watford, it's with regards to the owner Gino Pozzo. And um, there has been a report from a Spanish anti-corruption officer with regards to tax evasion um, on some transfers and potentially, uh, according to the, the Spanish authorities, we're, we're looking at nine million pounds or nine million euros. I can't, can't quite make this out, but it's, it's, it's a nine million figure um, relating to, and I quote, the complex movement of money coming from signing footballers. And, and I find this intriguing on a number of levels. Um, yeah, as as we both know, and some listeners uh, may may recall, um, I was asked to give a talk to Interpol and the National Crime Agency last year. And being the eternal schoolchild, um, I turned up in an Interpol band T-shirt because I thought it was absolutely <laughs> hilarious, and nobody else <laughs> thought it at, amusing at all. But I was still, I was chuckling away to myself you know, in, in the same way that you get from you know, anybody that's ever sort of been. You know, I, I used to sit in the back row at school and muck around. So anybody that's ever done that. So, um, but talking to um, one of the, the people there. Um, they were saying that in respect of money laundering and uh, corporate misfeasance, and uh, yeah, if you want to be involved in money laundering, um, I was advised the best ways to uh, work it out. If you're not going to go down the crypto route, because crypto is certainly one way of doing this, it, he said uh, fine arts, so you know paintings, which can be the, what's the value of a painting? We're never quite sure. Um, gambling profits. And football transfers were the three areas. So um, it's intriguing that this has now come up. If we take a look at the companies associated with Mr. Pozzo, who has uh, vehemently uh, defended himself and and claimed uh, innocence, and we're a great believer in habeas corpus, innocent until proven otherwise. Um, But there does appear to be a, a web of companies. I think that's the technical phrase we use in, in social media. A web of companies based in Italy, Luxembourg, and UAE. Um, and again, I, I can only say that from my own experience of trying to, to look at companies which are part of a complex group, it's very difficult at times to identify where the profits have gone and have not gone. So the Spanish authorities, by all accounts, are looking for a substantial tax repayment. And um, if, uh, if if a satisfactory settlement is not made, then they will be not only going for a financial uh, settlement, they'll be looking for a judicial one in, in the form of a prison sentence as well. So um, where does this leave Watford? Well, yeah, at present, they're saying nothing to do with us, Gov. Um, Mr. Pozzo saying, you know, I'm an innocent man. So don't don't put two and two together and think that the club's up for sale. Um, at the same time, you know, every club's up for sale. Yeah, we, 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 we're fully aware of this. I mean, there are several things out of that. 
it, it does seem strange that a prosecutor can say we have decided this chap is probably guilty and we want him to go to prison for 12 years, which, as you say, is um, the, the epitome of prejudging the situation. Yes. Uh, the value of a painting, um, this is what the art world will always tell you. I have a friend of mine who deals in um, issues such as this, the only really wealthy friend I have, and that includes producer guy. Um, producer guy is not a, a knight either. My friend has just been um, knighted which is hilarious. But um, as he will say, the value of a painting is exactly what somebody will pay for it. Mm. Yeah, you and I could do a a scrawl on the back of a postcard, but if somebody says that's worth a million quid, it's worth a million quid. Um, The crypto thing is really, I'm reading a book at the moment by, I believe somebody you know, Martin Calladine, about the shocking naivety, uh, verging on criminal naivety of football clubs when it comes to dealing with crypto who, and, and, the word money laundering is mentioned on just about every page in that book. I can't recommend it enough. Um, and also, I imagine you were sitting there, Kieran, on the plane on the way back from Thailand, sitting next to the Baroness. Uh, I imagine you'd probably turn left when you get on a plane, Kieran. I imagine you were sitting there thinking, if only I hadn't sat in the back row at school and mucked about, I would have done so much more with my life and look at look at what I've become reduced to being a jet setting global accountant. <laughs> and our next question, Kieran, our next story, I beg your pardon, involves talk of John Texter considering selling his stake in Crystal Palace. I'm going to suggest, Kieran, that we hold this over until the news pod next week because yep. there are noises coming from the club this Sunday morning about, please God, potentially a new uh, manager, and, I, and there are noises as well, I believe, that there are possible outcomes of this John Texas story by the time we speak again. So let's hold that over and, and see whether those um, things do happen. Um, so let's uh, let's do two more news stories, both involving West Ham, mm. um, one slightly less serious than the other. But <laughs> the first one, Kian, I mean, barely a pod goes by without us using the words West Ham, Rent, London Stadium in some uh, order or other. But it's it's uh, there's been legal issues this week. That's right. Um, E20 Stadium LLP uh, published its results. Um, and my relationship with the Baroness on the holiday... Um, is such or was such that she's now started to refer to company's house as her. So if, <laughs> if I if I say I'm, I'm just if I'm down at the pool and I'm just just, pop, just popping back just popping back to the to the, uh, to the to the room we're standing in, just is that does that mean you're going to get in contact with her again? So, and I'll be going. Wolves all have got a new director. <laughs> uh, so she, she wasn't, wasn't. But um, I, I did pick this up because I, yeah, you know, I, I read a load of books. You know, I, I, I had absolutely fantastic time. But I, I still, I, I, I am addicted to Company's House, and I, I'll, I'll, I can't deny that. Um, so in in respect of E Twenty LLP, who are the landlords of West Ham, um, there were a couple of things which came up. First of all. The value of the stadium in E20's accounts is zero. Such is the uh, fantastic deal that had been uh, negotiated by West Ham that 
effectively it's a white elephant, the stadium, uh, and it's going to be uh, you know, substantially borne by the taxpayers of London for the foregoing, you know, for the foreseeable future. Um, but secondly, um, there was reference to um, an out-and-court settlement with the uh, legal firm, um, one of, I think they were one of the what we refer to as the golden circle of lawyers. Um, and it looks like the lawyers have, have agreed an out-of-court settlement, of course, as it would be, um, to the tune of £2 million, which they've now given to the landlord. Um, the, the landlords are saying, you, you know, we were relying on you to negotiate this, which I think is a little bit harsh. You know, the, the, the lawyers are there to uh, pour over the small print, dot I's and cross T's and make sure that there's nothing uh, there's nothing inappropriate there. But you know, looking at that uh, contract where uh, the London taxpayer is paying for the flag, corner flags and the you know, marking the pitch and God knows what else, and it is it's a fantastic deal for West Ham. You know, I'm I'm more than happy to, to say that. And uh, but it, it looks as if uh, if the landlords have said we think that you should have perhaps spotted some of these things, our lawyer friends, and uh, you know, we we want a bit of compensation. It, it's not going to make up for the fact that West Ham are paying around about three and a half million pounds a year in rent, and the, the upkeep of the stadium is probably you know, four or five times that a year. As I mentioned, Kieran, uh, with this final news story, we're recording this at, um, it's now one o'clock on the Sunday, so West Ham fans will be at Sheffield United, uh, at the bar, going, how much? Are you sure? You've, you've got that right, love? Three quid a pint? That can't be right. Because that's how they all talk, obviously. Um, <laughs> because it, clearly, three quid a pint is a, is a lot less than... Uh, that's how I spoke when we went to Accrington. I was sure. I said, no, seriously, you've made a mistake. I don't want you to get into trouble with your boss. You've given me three pints here for six pound. That can't be... Um, clearly, the price of a pint of beer at the London Stadium... Is a lot more expensive because it's, it's made quite a kerfuffle in the London social media world, shall we say? Yeah, yes, it has. Um, it would appear that West Ham fans are paying more for a pint of beer um, and more for a pie than the fans of any other club. And whilst, to a certain extent, as a football fan, you do that, but because of the, our nature of football fans, you say, well at least the money's going to the club. But in the case of West Ham, the money doesn't go to the club because it's kept um, by the landlord. So, so they are recouping some, some additional money. However, my understanding is, again, um, and I'm going to praise Karen Brady twice here, which uh, wouldn't, wouldn't do under normal circumstances, you know, but, but fair point. Um, she did embed into the contract with the landlords a comparable price uh, clause such that West Ham fans would not pay more than the average, I think, of four or five other clubs in London. And you know, we're talking you know, top-tier clubs, Chelsea, um, Arsenal, Spurs, you know, Palace and so on. Um, so we – and therefore West Ham fans do appear to be uh, getting taken – uh, for a ride here, and that that's perhaps explains why many of them don't go for a drink, you know. Because if, if you if you look at the price, and and you know, I, I've said on on the show on many occasions, you know, Spurs make eight hundred thousand pounds a match from catering. Well, the price of a pint at the London Stadium is is far cheaper than the six pounds fifty, which I understand to be the case at the London Stadium, 
um, and therefore people arrive earlier and they leave later. And that's that's increasing the footprint. Whereas at the London Stadium, you, you rock up as close to kickoff as you possible. And when the match finishes, whoosh, you know, people leg it. Um, so, you know, that... Um, so, so that's that's the position. Um, the the cheapest pies are at Burnley, uh, three pounds compared to five pounds thirty at, uh, at West Ham. And you know we're talking price when you know we, there there could be qualitative issues. You know we we did have uh, Joe from Piglet's Pies on the show a couple of years ago, and uh, I, I know it would be completely against everything you believe to to, to buy a pie at Brighton Stadium, but they are the best pies around. You know, um, and yeah, I think we arranged for some to be. Uh, delivered for you to have a tasting session as well. So they're, they're damn good pies. Um, when it comes to the pints, um, the cheapest is at Sheffield United, as you rightly said, three pounds a pint, and also at Old Trafford. Um, you know, for all of the, the things which uh, can be levelled at the Glazers, there are also some very good people at Manchester United who, you know, know what it's like to be from Gorton, to be from Harper Hay, to be from Wally Range, and to be what, what I would refer to as, as a proper red who uh, you know lives on a you know a, 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 not the greatest of incomes um so yeah west ham fans are being taken to the cleaners um i think this might be moving forward in due course and yeah hopefully it will have a positive outcome to this yeah the, the, i i learned more about manchester geography from you Kieran, than i learned from re-listening to smith's albums my, my only two sources, really, of <laughs> local geography in that part of the world. Hi, I'm Steve Lamack, and every week I'm joined by Music Allies Head of Insight, Stuart Dredge, on The Price of Music, the weekly podcast all about the money behind the music industry. In each episode, we discuss the very latest goings-on in the music business and dig into the finances behind the big stories. So whether you're a music lover who just wants to know more about what really goes on in the industry, or you're an aspiring musician, manager or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works, or what the future holds for independent live music venues, this is a show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon. Let's get on to questions, Kieran. Yes. We have some good ones. And th- this first one is a new angle on a, a, a much-discussed topic. It comes from Graham Reid. And Graham says, I live in Scotland, but I mainly follow the Premiership and the Championship in England. Uh, we are re- holding your address. Uh, <laughs> on, just for your own safety, for that reason, Graham. A popular topic in Scotland, says Graham, is how would Celtic and Rangers get on in the Premiership or Championship? And I'm interested to hear all your views on how they would compare financially with the English clubs based on latest accounts. Then also, if you could inject the English League Sky payments into their accounts, how would they compare at that point? Now, that's the part of the question I find really interesting, Kieran, because we have discussed, as many football fans discuss on a, a sort of metaphysical level, how would Celtic and Rangers get on in English football, where would they fit in the great scheme of things? But I don't think we've ever discussed how Celtic and Rangers would operate if they were privy to the huge payments that English Premier League clubs are getting. So you put Celtic and Rangers in the Premier League, give them their share of the broadcasting money, I'm going to say they're going to be competitive, aren't they? Um, Very much so. Um, And uh, for anybody that's not yet read Pat Nevin's book, 
um, football and how to survive it. This is a this is an issue which he covers uh, quite extensively uh, in, in terms of when he was the chief executive of Motherwell Football Club. But if we go back to the very first season of the Premier League, 1992-93, what we have there is um, Rangers had the second highest level of revenue of any club in the UK. So apart from Manchester United, they, they were the second biggest. They earned more money than Arsenal, more money than Liverpool more money than Manchester City and, and so on. Um, and if we take a look at uh, Celtic in that six season, that same season, um, their revenues were higher than those of both Chelsea and Manchester City, who I think it's fair to say have probably been the, the two most successful clubs over the course of the, yeah, the last dozen years or so, um, with, with Liverpool, um, of course. So... They, they were very competitive to begin with. If we take a look at the position now, um, Celtic are making just short of £50 million a year from matchday income. Rangers is around about 40 Now, that does include European income. Where does that put them uh, compared to the big six? It puts them a wee bit behind, but that's because you know, we have... Three clubs out of the big six are based in London and able to charge London prices. And you've got Manchester United with a stadium with capacity in the mid-70s. You've got Liverpool, who have got 54, going up to 60-odd, and so on. So the the matchday income um, is significantly behind that of Manchester United, Arsenal, Spurs and Liverpool. Um, it's a little bit behind Chelsea and it's sort of midway behind Manchester City. So, you know, they those clubs, I, w- I would say, would be um, similar to West Ham and Newcastle, i.e. The, the top end of the other 14 in terms of their revenue generating ability. Now, there's lots of debate, which is comes from Celtic and Rangers fans to say, yeah, we've got a yeah, we've got huge international fan bases and, and they are large, certainly by Scottish standards. Um, you know, that would boost the clubs further, and that that could very well be the case. Um again, if I refer to Pat Nevin's book, but I also refer to um some of our secret chief executives and uh, friends in the English game to say, um What's the chances of this ever taking place? And those chances are zero or close to zero. Um, because from the perspective of the big six clubs, they don't want competition. You know, uh, six into four doesn't go, seven into four doesn't go. Uh, with Newcastle in terms of Champions League places, um, Celtic and Rangers could potentially be competitive. Um, from the point of view of, of our clubs, you know, why would Crystal Palace or Brighton vote to have Rangers and Celtic in the Premier League because potentially those clubs are going to take our positions away in due course. And if you are a club in the championship and people say, well, yeah, perhaps those clubs would have to go into the EFL first. Well, if I was Southampton or Leicester or Leeds or any of those um, other clubs, you know, Ipswich who are doing extremely well in the championship, again, they would see Celtic and Rangers as a threat. Um, so yeah, the only people who are likely to to want 
to see those clubs would be um, you know Rangers and Celtic fans who live in England or um, anybody uh, south of the border who has a, a particular interest in 17th century Irish history and wants to be reminded of it uh, twice a year. <laughs> um, moving on, our next question comes from David Gethings. Um, David says, while Daniel Levy has made Spurs one of the most financially successful clubs in Europe, some of the recent decisions, open brackets, Super League, staff furlough, manager selection, director of football, pre-hiring, due diligence, etc., close brackets, suggests groupthink and a lack of diversity and fan consideration and engagement at board level. Having got that off his chest, David then says, <laughs> my question is, how many season ticket holders are there at Spurs? What percentage of total annual revenue do season ticket sales make up? And how does this compare to other clubs? <clears throat> I thank David for the context of that question, but you know, it would have been much easier if you just said, how many season ticket holders are there at Spurs? <laughs> <clears throat> I enjoyed reading that list of things out, though, on David's behalf. Yes, yes, I feel that is, that is a, an itch which has now been scratched, David. <laughs> um, <laughs> thank you very much for the question. If we take a look at Spurs, um, my understanding is that they have 50,000 um, season tickets, um, of whom I think 9,000 are deemed to be premium season ticket holders and the rest are uh, general season tickets. They are certainly paying um, the highest or very close to the highest prices for season tickets uh, for the privilege of being in that stadium. And again, we've said on many occasions, fantastic stadium. Um, so by the time you then factor in... 3,000 away fans who can attend. That means that Spurs have around about you know, nine, nine and a half thousand tickets available um, to, to members. Um, they Spurs generated £106 million from ticket sales in 21-22. Um, I'd expect that figure to carry on rising. Um, I, I thought that they were in with, in with a chance of overtaking Manchester United as the club with the, the highest match day income, even though they've got smaller capacity because of their ability to charge higher prices. They, they generate around about a quarter of their revenue from um, match day sales, which is the highest proportion in the Premier League. Where does that put them compared to other clubs? Um, the answer is, I've not said these words for a few days, it depends. Um, and, and it does does depend upon the nature of the club. So, so if we take a look at Liverpool, for example, um, in, in terms of the, the tickets available to, to home fans, um, Liverpool only have 50% of their tickets available to season ticket holders, and the rest are allocated via a membership scheme. Um, a membership scheme which you have to pay to join. Um, it is significantly oversubscribed, and, and I think the tickets go on sale twice a year and by all accounts you know i i uh i share an office with uh, a liverpool season ticket holder but he's often trying to get tickets for uh i think uh his his lad who is is one of the members um it, it's a bit of a scramble but it's it's a successful scheme you know from the point of view of liverpool they would say uh, it, it allows a broader uh, a broader element of their fan base to, to get the opportunity to see Liverpool play at home a couple of seasons a year. If you contrast that with West Ham, um, West Ham have around about 47,000, 48,000 season ticket holders in the London Stadium because, um, you know, as, as you indicated yourself, um, you know, the, the, the West Ham fan base, it tends to be 
more local. And this isn't a criticism of Liverpool fans because, you know, as, as somebody with, uh, you know, an Irish uh, heritage and ancestry, I just know how popular both Liverpool and Manchester United and to a certain extent Arsenal are uh, across the water. Um, and it's it's similar in uh, Scandinavia and it's similar in, in certain other countries. West Ham tends to be more, you know, mm. Essex, East yeah, End yeah. and so on. You, you must have used the phrase, it depends a couple of times in Thailand, Kieran, as when the Baroness said, were you just off talking to her? And you say, well, it depends whether you mean by her, you mean Company's House or Tracy Crouch. Who knows? Could be, could be any of them. Um, Colin Brett has a simple but interesting question, Kieran. Colin says, are managers valued in the same way as players for accounting purposes? Yeah, this, this is an intriguing one, Colin. I mean, historically... Um, the the compensation paid for releasing a manager from a contract tended to be written off immediately. If you take a look at the accounts of Chelsea, um, when they certainly under Abramovich, um, when they uh, when they recruited uh, Anders Villas Boas from from another club, they just paid a compensation fee, put it through the accounts in that first year. But though that though that was pre. Uh, FFP, and therefore they didn't care anyway because Abramovich said yeah, it's just not a check as far as he was concerned. Um, what Chelsea are going to do in the case of Graham Potter, they, they paid £21 million compensation um, to release him from his contract. Um, he signed a six-year deal. So yeah, there was a case for saying that given that it was a compensation fee, could they treat that as an intangible asset and amortise it potentially? But because they sacked him six months later, there's no more benefit to Graham of Graham Potter to Chelsea, so therefore they would have to have written it off. Um, so I, I think I think it could possibly be treated in a similar manner. Um, the difference is with managers is that managers are sacked, um, and you know we, we know that the average tenure for a manager of a Championship club I think is ten months, uh, which is uh, it doesn't doesn't encourage managers to have long-term decisions and, and everything tends to be somewhat concertinaed. Players, if they're not playing well, they tend to sit out their contract. They can only be dismissed either through a charge of gross misconduct or alternatively um, if there's a mutual agreement between player. So I think because players tend to sit out their contracts they would be amortised. There's a case for saying relatively few managers last the full length of their contract. And therefore, what tends to be the case is the compensation fee paid in releasing a manager from an existing contract, assuming that you're recruiting from elsewhere, as opposed to recruiting a manager who's who's currently not in uh, a position at a club. Um, I'd probably be more likely to see them being written off immediately. Mm. Uh, Birmingham City, Kieran, I think have made a very sensible, safe and secure decision in the appointment of their new manager. Uh, Neil Cottrell, uh, I presume is a Birmingham City fan, has a question about their infrastructure, though, because Neil says, how will the repairs to Birmingham City's St Andrews be treated from a profitability and sustainability perspective? The total cost of the repairs are thought to exceed £5 million. Well, Neil, um, I think uh, Birmingham City will be able to claim that this is part of the overall investment in infrastructure. And infrastructure costs are 
specifically excluded from the PSR stroke FFP calculations, um, and therefore any money being spent on that particular area will not impact upon the, the playing budget uh, in terms of recruitment of players, agreeing contracts and wages and so on. So I, I think uh, Birmingham and you know, I've, I've been to St Andrews um, on many an occasion. Um, we went there, myself and the Baroness went there uh, for a match just before Christmas, I think it was in, in 2016, and the Baroness went dressed as a snowman. Um, which, which did provoke a few strange stares from the from the uh, uh, from security as she, as she walked in to the ground. They weren't quite sure whether to uh, 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 frisk her or not. I imagine there would be a, a queue of volunteers waiting to frisk. That would have been the day for any other Birmingham fan to smuggle anything they wanted into into St Andrews. <laughs> uh, no one else was getting searched that day. I, I, uh, Birmingham City, I'd say one of the most generous clubs I've ever been to as a as a broadcaster. I, I used to love going to Birmingham. Um, uh, I've got a slight soft spot, uh, well, for the city as a whole, but especially for the, the football club. This is an interesting one, Kieran, from Tom Thorpe, who says, my local club, Margate FC's most recent plan for their stadium development includes a hotel which shows the Holiday Inn logo. I wondered how a deal like this between the hotel company would work. Do you think there'd be a one-off fee or contribution to the improvement of the stadium, or would there be a more long-term rent to be paid to the club? A, a lot would depend upon um, who owns the stadium. Um, sorry, who owns the hotel? Uh, is it being built by the, the hotel company itself? If so, are they paying a ground rent or, or similar? If we take a look at a, a few clubs, there's a, there's a hotel at Chelsea Stadium. There is a hotel at MK Don Stadium, and there's a hotel at the Reebok um, because it is still the Reebok, despite what everybody else tries to claim. Um, and those monies um, have generated rent, and, and that's that that has been included um, uh, in, in the accounts of the club. So, yeah, my, my gut reaction is I think in respect of Margate, it's likely that the hotel chain will be building this. And therefore, there will be a, a an annual fee paid for for rental to the club, uh, because they will still be the landlord of the, the land as opposed to the building itself. I've stayed in that hotel at the Reebok. I, nothing more exciting. Pulling your curtains back in the morning, which I know sounds like a euphemism, but it isn't. It's nothing more exciting than pulling your curtains back in the morning and seeing a football pitch. It just it's just it's, it's a football pitch. Because Ali's going, oh, it'd be nice if you could see the sea or some mountains. Look, I can see a football pitch. Imagine a football pitch. You've seen loads of football pitches. You've seen loads of mountains and seas. Um, Eric Lyons, Kieran, has a question about what is increasingly becoming, um, uh, I wouldn't say an article of concern for our fans, but it's certainly something that they're getting uh, a little wound up about, and that's the multi-club ownership model. And Eric says, are there any tools in place to prevent teams within such a model, transferring as opposed to loaning players to each other at anything other than fair value. In theory, what would prevent transfers that allow teams to retain player services while also retaining transfers fees for their sale, brackets if they were sold to another club within the group, close brackets, and then loaned back to the original club? Well, um, Eric, you, you've clearly been following the activities of somebody we've already mentioned on the show, Watford FC, and they're... <laughs> they're, they're very 
close relationship with Udinese. Um, you know, you know, you know, Watford and Udinese say we're not part of a, a multi-club um, ownership model. We just happen to be both owned by people called Pozzo, um, who are, happen to be in a, a father and son relationship. Um, th- there was a transfer last year. Um, Watford sold a player to Udinese and immediately loaned him back. Watford booked a big profit on that. Um, the uh, Udinese said, well, the Italian authorities have reviewed this for fair value. And also the Premier League has introduced rules that for any transaction worth more than a million pounds, that that has to go through and be approved by a fair value panel. Um, who's on this panel? How do they make that, those decisions? It, it's, it's industry experts and they're using, to a certain extent, uh, gut feel. What you don't really want is uh, situations, uh, as we saw with um, Aaron Moy, who I appreciate this is this is an olden but golden one. Uh, Aaron Moy, Australian football player, good player. Um, he was playing for Melbourne City, who are part of the City Football Group, and he was then sold to another club in the City Football Group called Manchester City. Now, there's no equivalent of FFP in Australia, or there wasn't at the time. Um, so therefore, he was sold on a free transfer. So Manchester City paid nothing for him. Um, Manchester City immediately loaned him to Huddersfield Town. So therefore, they got a loan fee. Huddersfield Town were promoted at the end of that season. And I think there was an obligation to buy Aaron Moy. So Manchester City earned around nine, about nine to ten million pounds for a footballer for whom they paid nothing who never played for Manchester City. Not only did he never play for Manchester City, he was never actually photographed in that traditional holding a scarf and the shirt. <laughs> so I, I've scoured it. You know, if anybody can find this, you know, it, it's, uh, it, this is a bit like a, you know, the golden panini guard. If you can find a picture of, Man, uh, of Aaron Moy in Manchester City. So Manchester City made nine to ten million pounds. And that was within the rules. You know, that was not in uh, that was not a breach of the rules. Um, and clearly, that does make you feel uneasy um, with regards to you know, transparency. Well, it certainly was transparent, but in, in terms of what one considered to be a fair value transaction. So um, the position is, Eric, that the rules have been tightened um, because uh, as we have uh, an increasing number of uh, MCOs operating within Europe and, and elsewhere, um, there is uh, a, a feeling that utilisation of uh, player transfers could be used to circumvent FFP. And we'll go back to you know, what I was saying earlier about Interpol. Um, you know, and this, this, this isn't saying that any of these transfers are, are fraudulent because they're not. Um, but it, it is an easy way to, to, to increase or decrease numbers as and when suits you. Let's move on to a question, Kieran, that I find really interesting, and I'll explain why afterwards. It's our penultimate question, and it comes from Jacob McMaster. And Jacob says, do you know if player contracts ever have release clauses linked to the manager or coach? Sometimes players join clubs because they're clearly desperate to play under a certain manager. So if a club really wanted that player, could conditions be inserted into the contract which would kick in if the manager was sacked? The reason I find this so interesting, Kieran, is that 
Sir Alex Ferguson was clearly the driving force behind the transfer of Wilf Zahar from Palace to Man United. And it was, it was a deal that was above board. It was all very generously done. They paid the correct fee. They, they were yeah, very patient in waiting for Wilf to be ready uh, to go to Manchester United. And then Sir Alex pretty much retired almost immediately when Wilf went. And I think that Wilf's career would have been very different if Sir Alex Ferguson had stayed on as manager of Manchester United. David Moyes treated him in a way that's very different, made Wilf unhappy. I think if any other manager than Sir Alex Ferguson was at Manchester United, or if, if, if Wilf Sahar and his people knew that Sir uh, Alex was going to retire, I think that transfer may not have happened. So I think this is a really, really interesting question. Yes, and there was a similar case at, at Brighton with uh, Billy Gilmore. He he was signed because uh, Graham Potter persuaded him to to come to Brighton. I think he had other offers at the time, um, and, and he joined. And then uh, Graham Potter disappeared three weeks later to Chelsea. Ironically, whom well Billy Gilmore had come from, and Gilmore didn't didn't get near the first team. Yeah, you know, he, he got a couple of matches in the cups and so on. And I think he was thinking about uh, yeah whether whether he'd made a wise decision. Um, could you have this embedded into a contract? Yes, you could. Um, whether the buying club would agree to such a clause, I think, is is open to debate. I think a lot would depend upon the strength of the the players' negotiating hand compared to that of the the bidding club. So it would not be a normal clause, but in the world of uh, football transfers, it's it, it does say it depends. But my understanding is that this would actually be a fairly rare occurrence because managers coming and going is just deemed to be part and parcel of the game. And um, having read a few footballers' autobiographies in, in the past few weeks, it was quite clear that you know, when the new manager comes in, if you're out of the first team, you see this as an opportunity to impress. And uh, if you've played for that manager before and you don't like him, you go, oh, Christ, yeah, I need to get onto my agent. And I don't have an explicit contract, but I know I know my face is not going to fit at the club, so I need to move on. So there won't necessarily be something embedded into the contract, but football has a way of sorting this thing out. Um, because it's pointless having unhappy people at clubs um, if, uh, if if there's not if there's a breakdown in the relationship between player and manager. I just have this image now, Kieran, of uh, young, glamorous people walking along the beach in Thailand, saying to themselves, "Who is that bloke under the uh, under the Tony Cascarino book?" Yesterday it was Billy Brenner. Yesterday, and now he's reading the book about Tony Cascarino. He's he's come to the wrong place, isn't he? Um, <laughs> Our last question, Kieran, comes from Francesca Warren, um, and it's a very good question, although I have to say, Kieran, it's of more interest to you than it probably <laughs> is to me. <laughs> but, it, but it is a very interesting question. Francesca says, is it typical for clubs to pay capital gains tax on player transfers? For example, Enzo Fernandez joined Benfica in June 2022 for €18 million Euros and was then sold in January 2023 for million. Excuse me. If they do pay capital gains tax, how much? How do clubs mitigate the amount of tax they pay? Right. Um, tax rules vary from country to country. You know, they, they are very much a, a tailored thing. 
Um, for people not familiar with capital gains tax, capital a capital gain is the difference between the purchase price and the sale price of an asset. Now, that's normally property, but it can be shares. And in the case of footballers, it can be the, the football player's registration. Um, as far as UK rules are concerned, and you know, it, it's a long time since I taught tax, uh, it was it was far too much like a, a proper job. And, and they used to go and change the rules every 12 months, which I always found a bit unsporting. I just about learned them from books this thick. Uh, I think, oh, no, he's brought in or she's brought in some, some new rules to make my life more complex. Um, but if you have uh, capital gains, you can also have capital losses. So yeah, if we take the case of uh, Manchester United signing Paul Pogba, they signed him for 80 to 90 million pounds and he was released at the end of his contract for nothing. So that is a capital loss. So what clubs are able to do is that they're able to, to offset losses on contracts against profits and... Uh, if they've got a little bit of sense, they'll, they'll do a bit of tax planning. And sometimes you can shift these things forwards or backwards uh, for a year or two. Um, so you, you try to make sure that if you have sold um, you know, uh, an Enzo Fernandez or a Moises Caicedo, um, that you've got a, a, a few a few duffers or yeah, it isn't duffers because ultimately they're, they're still very highly talented elite athletes. But for, for, but for whatever reason. Um, you know, a transfer has not worked out or the transfer uh, contracts expired and the player is now left on a Bosman. So if you've, if you've made a profit of £100 million on one deal and you've got two other deals and you made losses of 40, you, you offset your profits against the losses. Um, and that way that goes to, to, to reduce your overall tax bill. When it comes to capital gains tax, how much profit do you have to make before you get taxed on it. Is it worked out on a percentage? So, I mean, like I say, if, if, if you buy a player for 50 million and sell him for 200 million, how much more than 50 million would you have to sell him for before you would charge capital gains tax? In, in theory, uh, a pound. You know, it's... Uh, oh, it's, uh, it's uh, right. Now, you know, there are allowances, there are... You know, the, there's the equivalent of amortisation which you can use in terms of the sale price and so on and bits and pieces. Um, but... Uh, that there, there are uh, there are rules which say a profit's a profit. It's it's not the uh, companies don't have the equivalent of individuals in, in the sense of having personal allowances. Um, the the only difference is is that um, under the current rules which are coming in, I think for twenty three twenty four, um, companies can pay the nineteen percent corporation tax on profits if they're deemed to be a small company and if they're uh, if they make a certain level of profit, they pay at 25%. And in between, um, you have to get out slide rules and calculators and all that type mm. of nonsense. <clears throat> slide rules and calculators. Oh, and spreadsheets. Oh, I'm a, back. These are a few of my favourite things. <laughs> Julie Andrews got it completely wrong. Thank you to everyone who's donated to the pod via our Patreon page. If you'd like to make a small monthly contribution to the pod as well, that'd be very kind of you. We also get you access to our chat community and our regular quizzes. 
And you can do that by going to patreon.com slash priceoffootball. You can go to questions at priceoffootball.com if you'd like a question answered on the show. And if you'd like to buy our book or our other books or a Price of Football t-shirt, guess where you go, Kieran? Priceoffootball.com. <laughs> we'll be back on Thursday with the news. Um, I'm hoping that Palace will be part of that, fingers crossed. In the meantime, I shall hand you over to Mr Kieran Maguire for his customary farewell. Uh, well, as always, thanks for everybody who, who engages with the show through social media and other means. Fortunately, the Baroness doesn't check Twitter. Uh, so I, I was. <laughs> otherwise, she, I thought you said you weren't have anything to do with football finance over the next two weeks. Uh, well, yeah, it's just me chatting to people. Um, but, uh, but we do appreciate uh, everybody getting in contact and, uh, and and the various ways you support the show. Um, there's another way that you can support the show, and, and that's to give us a review. Um, and also give us a review for the book, if, you, if you'd like to do so. It helps us with uh, the charts as far as Amazon are concerned. I think we've dropped to number three in the most gifted industrial archaeology category in Amazon. <laughs> and we're still very baffled as to how we ever got to number two in that particular chart. But we'll, we'll take it. We'll take it. Um, uh, but there's another way you can support the charts, uh, support the show, and if you give us a review, doesn't matter what you say. So you could even say, um, and, and I personally would listen to this show. I, I might need some uh, uh, chemical uh, assistance. Um, you'd either say the show was presented by Bez from the Happy Mon- Mondays and Parker from Thunderbirds, and I think <laughs> that would be so surreal. It'll be as good as Dougal and the Blue Cat, which is without doubt the trippiest film in the history of movies. It, uh, you know, I, having spent some time in the company of uh, what well, one of them, obviously, uh, it's surprisingly <laughs> down to earth, pleasant, uh, intelligent young man. And until such time as he was called upon to go in front of the cameras, then God knows what happened. But uh, <laughs> Parker, and you know, I, I, it's. I love Thunderbirds. Who doesn't love Thunderbirds? Who doesn't love those sudden close-up shots of someone's real hand? Yes. <laughs> but I could never quite understand why, A, my dad claimed that he knew loads of people about Punk. The man was a thief. The man was, he was, his job was to basically advise the Thunderbirds and Lady Penelope how to break into places. It's like kind of gentler times, I suppose, really. That's right. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Bye. The price of football. Bye, son, for the